Welcome to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. I'm Dr. Raymond Brill with my co-host, Perry Brill, and we're here to bring you stories about Wizards of Eyes. Yes, what is a wizard, Dr. Brill? Well, these are folks that you may have heard about, may not have heard about. These are people who are actually very successful in doing what they do in all aspects of eye care. We're not talking to self-proclaimed industry geniuses, experts, masters, or gurus, because we're talking to wizards of eyes that make it happen each and every day. They are out there working every day, in the labs, on the road, in the practices, in surgery suites, making lenses, making frames. Yes, we want to hear these back-of-the-house stories about innovation, entrepreneurship, and make you feel excited to do what you do. We want you to be energized about the whole eye care field. And this is not your big optical program. This is done out of the passion of our hearts. Please go ahead and subscribe to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite app. Also, visit entrepreneur.com where you'll find our latest blogs and special video content. That's www.eyetrepreneur.com. This episode of Entrepreneur is supported by 3DNA Eyewear, the only 3D facial scanning bespoke eyewear design app that allows opticians to design any frame a creative mind can imagine. Like frame materials made from wood, shell, buffalo horn, carbon fiber, acetate, titanium, and even your favorite vinyl records. Deliver to your office in as little as seven days. Are you tired of being showroomed? Are you tired of RXs walking out your door for cheap do-it-yourself online ordering? Well, no more perpetual in-office try-on of frames until it's so confusing that you lose the sale. Free up capital, lower your inventory costs, and make frames to order. All you do is design the frame for a perfect fit based on a 3DNA facial and head scan. Join the revolution of 3DNA eyewear providers and stand strong against mass-produced frames. You are in charge of the design and material selection. It's your brand now. Download the app for free at our website, entrepreneur.com slash wizard, and start designing today with our special limited time offer. Welcome to this episode of Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. Today, our guest is Dr. Aaron Galani. He's a world-renowned eye surgeon, former chief of cornea and refractive surgery at University of Florida, and he's the founding director and chief surgeon of the internationally famous Galani Vision Institute in Jacksonville, Florida. Welcome, Dr. Galani. Thank you so much for having me. We're happy to have you on and gain some insight of how and why people call you the Da Vinci of eye surgery uh, with your artistic surgical skills. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about your journey into medicine and into ophthalmology. Sure. Again, thank you for having me, Dr. Brill. Um, my journey in ophthalmology was and still is more about uh, helping change people's lives. A tremendous opportunity that we have, a tremendous privilege to be eye doctors. So my, when I was growing up back in India, I could have been a model or a doctor, and being the eldest son, you're always supposed to be a doctor. That's the privilege for the family. 
So stood first in the university and uh, became a doctor. And in your rotations, you know, you have rotations in different fields, right? When you're an intern. Um, when I walked into the OR for eye surgery, it was fascinating. I still remember the dark room, uh, microscope lights, music playing, and then immediate gratification of patients seeing and the tears in their eyes of gratitude and how nice it makes you feel that you change people's life. Also, the fact that I could constantly fan my desire for innovation because such a technology-driven profession. And in addition, uh, the fact that you can be compassionate, caring, and yet focused in such an amazing sense in our entire body. So that's what led me to ophthalmology. And um, I've never looked at it as work, as a profession. It's just part of life. Where did you go to your, for, to your training? So initially in India uh, at uh, King Edward Memorial Hospital, which is called the Howard of the East, is uh, where I trained in ophthalmology completely. Um, stood first in the university and uh, got a lot of experience. And by then I had decided to be a refractive surgeon, which if you recollect in the 1980s, that was a, a buccaneer topic. There was no such uh, specialty. But I had always believed that wearing glasses is not normal. It's an appendage. It's, uh, it's uh, what you call uh, braces, if you may, right? And uh, at some point, people should see the best they can without appendages. And hence started the journey, how can we make people see the best they can see? And refractive error is not normal. So I wrote uh, in my residency, I was constantly evaluating these concepts, even in surgeries like cataract surgery that we were doing. Uh, today, this word refractive cataract surgery has become famous, but that was my tone on day one, because how can you do eye surgery and not correct refractive error, right? So from there on started my journey and I started doing, uh, I was blessed to have a lot of opportunity in my university to innovate. And having interacted with surgeons from all over the world who would come to us uh, uh, at the university, I wrote a textbook on uh, color Doppler for eye tumors ah, uh, at the age of 24, still a resident, and uh, got invited all over to speak, uh, went all over the world, and uh, then got invited to do a fellowship in the U.S. So I finished my complete ophthalmology there <clears throat> and... Uh, Came to the U.S., uh, did my fellowship in refractive surgery. Then, as you know, uh, we have to repeat our residency uh, in the in the U.S. So I did that all four years again. Oh boy! It was amazing. That uh, it was amazing. A great opportunity. You were probably e easily the top re chief resident then. It was fun. So I did not lose my philosophy. Still, the hardest working. Come early morning. You know, leave late. And as a resident, I traveled the world teaching. It was fantastic feeling, you know, while my grand rounds, they were reading my book chapters that I had written. So it was really fun. Yes. <laughs> and um, I kept feeling stronger and stronger about the fact that refractive surgery is the future and uh, everybody should see the best they can and why not? And who decided 2020 is normal? So that was my other constant battle. Why are people saying 2020 is perfect? So that journey led me, uh, as I finished, uh, was invited to start the Department of Refractive Surgery for University of Florida in Jacksonville, did that. Uh, then it led me to basically, you know, put my lifetimes, uh, everything I had into a practice where I believed that every patient must be treated like family. Nobody should be rushed. There should be no advertising. There should be no nonsense or deals going on. And yet the performance has to be amazing and consistent. So I started my practice, Galani Vision Institute in Jacksonville, Florida. 
and was pleasantly surprised that people were actually flying uh, and I did not have to move to LA or New York uh, given my reputation at that time. So all these became my lifelong learning lessons and I've never read any book in my life. So I keep unfolding what I call my GPS. I do believe each one of us is born with a GPS, born with a mode and mission. Most people realize that only after they retire, which is a waste. So that GPS today has become famous as Gulani Planning System, which is a bi-monthly article in iWorld uh, publication. And that is nothing more. Like I said, I'm a simple person. I just follow my heart. What would I do if this patient was my family? And am I still the best to perform this? Those are the only two filters uh, I carry when I uh, approach a patient. So that's my journey to ophthalmology. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I love the acronym GPS. So I think we all need to adopt some acronym like that in our uh, work and life uh, mottos. So what, <laughs> what year did you establish Gulani Vision? And did you always have that knack for entrepreneurship? So in 2004, I started uh, Gulani Vision Institute. I mean, the story of how we did that is itself a big uh, story for a movie where I drove my realtor nuts about, I had zero patients and um, I told them people will fly and uh, I would keep looking for a place that looked like a seven-star lobby. And uh, he thought I was nuts because I had no patients and I was uh, feeling very strong about, you know, this will be a world center for education and patient care. So that's how we started. Then, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to answer your question about knack for entrepreneur, I never realized that. Like I said, I just kept unfolding what I do. For example, uh, going out and meeting doctors or taking people out to lunch or, you know, uh, schmoozing around. I never did that. Uh, I just let each patient of mine, what I call them, I call them tornadoes, meaning each patient you've treated so well. Of course, you also delivered vision that everybody said cannot be done. Now that patient becomes your uh, torch carrier, if you may. So I realized that subconsciously, as I kept investing my energy in each and every patient, until date, I haven't changed my style. That's great. So let's get into some of the key principles of um, Gulani Vision, because you really aim at a different type of success, both inside your practice and achieving your patients' visual goals. So what has been your key principles to attracting the clientele you get? What I realized is... Uh, Patients are very savvy, especially nowadays with internet and so much information out there, right? They are so knowledgeable, even of technology that may not have come out in your particular state, city, or country, because people travel the world. So I was fascinated to learn that patients came in to see me, having done so much research that it became so easy for me to discuss their plan. I believe patients are coming to me for three reasons, uh, as we've talked about before, the three reasons I see them are one, patients who may be what they consider themselves or their surgeons referring them over to me will call them routine but highly demanding, meaning they may have routine refractive errors or cataracts or something, but they're very demanding. They want exact vision. They are pilots. They are surgeons. They are one-eyed, etc. Second category of patients I see are those who are called complex or complicated. They may have had a bad LASIK, a bad premium cataract surgery, previous radial keratotomy, corneal scars, keratoconus. And the third category are those who are called not a candidate. I do believe there is no such thing as not a candidate. Every patient is a candidate as long as a doctor can design the surgery to them. 
So what's happening in the country, in the world is most surgeons know one or two techniques. So everybody gets the same LASIK. I call it the same burger, cookie cutter concepts. You should be a master chef. There are 500 ingredients, over 10,000 recipes. Design each patient's vision recipe. Okay. Well, that sounds very, is, is that what you call the Gulani way? <laughs> you could, I mean, Gulani way if you have to. Uh, I think to summarize what you're asking me today, I feel impromptu. Gulani way could be the way I meet them, um, invite them into the institute once they've landed. Uh, the personal touch, the follow through for life, the uh, the intensity with which I plan their surgery, <clears throat> excuse me, and the delivery, of course, uh, which puts me on the edge every day. Like today, this weekend, uh, I'm already planning uh, the planned surgical plan for over 18 patients who will be landing next week, starting Monday. So all this is intense behind-the-scenes work, which is why I believe uh, they arrive at the results they do. So I would call that the Golani way if you have to. Maybe, maybe you could go through your day from uh, from beginning to end on a typical day. I always want to be a fly on a wall and seeing how uh, superstars really function during the day. So how does your day start and... Tell us, you know, if they're all surgery patients or do you have patients come in and say, I want to see a specialist for glasses or contacts? At this point, 100% of my patients are referred by ophthalmologists or optometrists uh, from anywhere in the world. So majority of them come literally with uh, a label of what's going on. As I said, the three category of patients, right? And my day would start at uh, 8.30 a.m. So ends at around 5 p.m. And then if I have, uh, usually we have a lot of visiting surgeons, optometrists, doctors, even med students, and I will spend time with them, you know, inspire them any way I can. So that's my typical day. I see maybe 12 patients, 13 max, maybe in a day. I do not like to go beyond that. Each patient, new patient gets an hour with me, at least. I don't track my time. So it's really a very odd way in which I practice. Patients, when they come, there is no waiting room. Because uh, the minute they arrive, my schedule is so, I mean, uh, uh, I, I keep it in such a way, the minute they come in, they are taken back. There is no such thing as waiting. Everybody knows them by first name. Uh, any of my patients can even drop by, say hi, hello to me. I'll come out, chat with them, have lunch. So I don't know how I manage it, but I never look at my watch, and it's always fun through the day. That's great. It sounds like you have a really concierge experience. I think that's what we lose in medical law is we want to burn and turn but if you invest in each individual, they, they really fear the care and the love. Absolutely, they do. Yes. So if you differentiate yourself from a lot of uh, ophthalmologists, I mean, they're seeing 60 to 100 patients a day, you know, and mainly trying to find out uh, who is a surgical candidate, I imagine. So what would you say to the mainstream of ophthalmology who's really you know, really struggling to uh, get as many surgery patients as they can by going through such a vast, I mean, they go through patients quickly, I mean, two, three, four minutes. So a lot of these surgeons fly to me. A lot of them call me. In fact, I wrote an article in um, one of the ophthalmology magazines where I said, I ask all these eye surgeons point blank, is this why you became a doctor? And they all get shocked. And I pose this question to everybody who flies to me or has these kind of questions for me. And I ask them this question which stumps them. Is this why you became a doctor? 
you are advertising to bring in patients. You go around schmoozing around with people, doing deals, and you pull in 80 patients a day. Then you hate to go to your own office. Then you are waiting to finish on time so you can play golf. I mean, what a miserable life. <laughs> yeah. What a miserable life you're leading. And on top of that, most of the patients are getting mediocre care. And many a times you're cheating them by trying to sell things that don't make sense. So to me, that is a bizarre, vicious cycle that leads to complete, what you call dissatisfaction with what I think is the best profession in the world. I would tell every eye doctor, first of all, it's a privilege that you get to change people's lives. Second, sit down and focus on the patient. You'll be amazed. So many times the patient is telling you they want something and you're not listening because you're trying to sell them the latest thing you learned at the last meeting. Correct. You know? Correct. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. Many of these doctors, when they come to me, they ask me, which is what you haven't asked me, doc, what's your secret? How come all your patients sign up? I said, because I don't care for them to sign up. I just tell them what's right for them. I'm not selling anything. There is no games going on. There is no advertising. It's just you do what's right for them and then they become your uh, cheerleaders, if you may. So my answer always is do not blame the external environment like insurance or what's happening, blah, blah, blah. It's your internal environment. Make your office a place you would like to go to. Make yourself a guy someone would love to talk to. Why are you miserable all the time? Why are you running around? Why are you wincing when your beeper goes on? Who put the beeper on your belt today morning? You did. <laughs> <laughs> so since you mentioned insurance, a lot of times we have special treatments that I would say are advanced. Uh -huh. And the patients look to you that, how am I going to afford that? I can't afford anything. And if I ask them, well, can you uh, afford this? And they're like, no, unless it's free or the insurance company pays for it, or I can get it at Costco, I'm not going to get any of the treatments that I really, really need. Let's say in, in my case would be, let's say for dry eye or sclerals or some, something that is a little bit more complex. Well, someone has to pay for it. And how do you handle the patients where they need uh, an intensive amount of care that's going to take some time, energy, and there's going to be some cost to it when they say, I, ha I don't have any money. Surely. <clears throat> we can only be so charitable. We are charitable, but we only can be so charitable because we have, we have costs, we have to pay our staff and offices and all that. Of course, absolutely valid question. And here's my base of that diagnosis. It again boils down to what is the value of your service and time that someone looks at? And how is the doctor raising it? Now look at the scenario in, in the eye care industry in the nation today. Doctors are trying to sell laser cataract surgery, calling it robotic. By calling it robotic, you have, first of all, undermined your own ability. How many people can put two fingers in the eye and do a magic? It's, it's amazing, right, what we get to do. So you're undermining surgical skills or, in optometrist cases, their ability to fit the lens, make it match, make the patient see. It's a highly accountable endpoint. So the service has to be something that the patient understands has a cost to it or has a value to it, more importantly. Same people stand outside till 4 a.m. to get the first iPhone for $1,000. How come? Because they perceive the value. Doctors have driven down the value of what they do. Hey, come to me. I'll do a three-minute cataract surgery. Well, the patient thinks, why the hell should I pay you more than $4 then? You get me? So that's the nidus of this issue. Now, you escalate the issue to a simple discussion. Any patient, uh, again, I've never thought about this because I look at the patient intently, but if you tell the patient they have dry eyes, they need XYZ treatment, and you believe in it, the patient gets it. And then, of course, whatever the cost is, they look at it, and then you, they look at concepts of how to approve it, 
care credit, whatever, Wells Fargo, whatever they do. But I truly believe many a times I've seen doctors trying to sell things that they don't believe in. They're just doing it. And the patient sees that. It's like, you know, you go to a restaurant, you can tell that the food is not great and the restaurant's trying to oversell. But you can tell a place, other place, right from the time you enter the door, you're ready because you don't think about the wallet. When you go to Tiffany's, you think about cut carrot clarity, not about coupons. And when you go to a place which is just talking coupons and values, you miss the point about checking out the diamond. That makes a lot of sense. So even though we know that patients have high expectations uh, of what, what we can deliver, but um, even though we don't uh, kind of look at them as according to their ability to pay, you know, a lot of times they have high expectations that someone else should take care of those needs. And, and that, becomes, that becomes difficult because you know that they need something. However, you have a physical cost on it too. So I want to get um, jump into a topic that you uh, – brought up just briefly a moment ago, and, and it was about, you know, ophthalmologists are seeing 60, 80 patients a day, and they're wondering why they're doing so few surgeries. And, you know, we, we pose this quite often to our partner ophthalmologists that we work with, and they're doing routine refractive eye exams all day long. And they're wondering why they're getting zero referrals from us. And they're not, we have to be on the same game plan as them and can't be competing against each other because there really is a symbiotic relationship between us. So what do you think is that symbiotic relationship? I think it's a great time for that symbiotic relationship going on between ophthalmology and optometry because, again, I, I have nothing against any doctor seeing 60 patients. I just ask them why. If that makes you happy, absolutely, go see 120. But if it makes you miserable at 5 p.m., you have to go back home, look in the mirror and go, why am I doing this? I could be better off smiling, bagging people in publics. Got it? So it has to make you happy. You don't go to school for 40 years and come out miserable for the next 30 years and then retire and go fishing. If fishing made you happy, that's what you should do. So my whole concept here is ophthalmology, optometry. I, I truly believe this and I've said this many times. It's an amazing relation, especially nowadays with look at the amazing stuff optometry can do, scleral contacts, dry eye management. They are the end game for vision. Ophthalmologists can do amazing stuff now. We have lasers, we have diagnostics that are way beyond what was available even 10 years ago. So the capacity for the patient is tremendous with this relation. Now, why would an eye surgeon do a routine exam? Well, again, I come back to if it makes them happy, do it. If not, you know, meet with your optometrist locally or whoever your local optometrists are. See what the patient can benefit with. Can you do surgery? Can they do follow-up? Can you do uh, intense surgery while the optometrist does dry eye management? Can you send your irregular cases if you cannot do corneoplastic to the optometrist to fit scleral contact lenses? I believe that relation is a must today for a tremendous feedback and uh, end game for both ophthalmology and optometry. Yes, and that seems to be a point of contention different in different cities, you know, um, where Ophthalmologists may not say that there's an additional treatment that they don't do, and I'm thinking right now of dry eye, that they don't do. And, and you know, I, I generally have this concept of being a referral hero, meaning if you don't do something or you do it to the point where you know other, other treatments need to be done and, and a colleague does it, refer them out for that. You'll retain your patient because now the, uh, the doctor is just a consultant. But if you don't refer them out, you're going to lose that patient because they'll tell that you weren't, you didn't have the candor and that you didn't cooperate, you know, to the patient's 
best interest. So that seems to be a very difficult concept to get across for fear that uh, patients will leave their practice when it's the exact opposite. So I, yeah, I think what you're saying is don't sabotage the patient. Let them know there's other options, right? Yeah, you might not do it, but someone else does. Yeah, say for example, say you know what, I'm a refractive surgeon, and you're going to need some dry eye treatment due to your this, your ocular surface disease. I don't do that, but I have an optometric colleague, part of our extended team, and I'm going to refer you to him or her and let them fix up your ocular surface so that we could be very successful with your premium IOL or your LASIK and be honest about it. So, but that seems to be a difficult concept for everyone to understand. So, how do you, how would you speak to that to, to the local ophthalmologist who is saying, oh, I just want to do, I just want to do the LASIK or premium IOL placement. And I'll put them on restasis, you know, that should be good enough. As long as I get my sale, I am, I'm good. So again, I come back to my very basic concept, W-H-Y. Why? Any doctor who does this, what you just mentioned to me, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a bad throat, but any doctor who does these things, imagine the energy that was spent in deciding what to do with the patient. The energy of should I send this patient, will I retain this patient, will the patient come back? I ask this question, W-H-Y. If the patient needs something, just send them to a place. If you don't do it, for example, in my case, I am actually writing an article as we talk uh, for Ophthalmology Times. I'm calling it Y, W-H-Y. And I, I write there, if I see a patient with a retinal issue, I don't want to do the OCT and then decide for the poor patient. I tell them you need to see a retina specialist, period. It's so simple. It's so simple for me. It's simple for the staff. How much energy do doctors spend in trying to do these politics of can I keep the patient? Will the patient come back? You know, it's like true love. Let it go. <laughs> if it was your patient, it will come yeah. back. Well, maybe it seems, maybe it's, it's as simple it, as it's that. Perhaps it's simpler between ophthalmology to ophthalmology, but I'm talking mainly about ophthalmology to optometry. I've been told it's a, it's, it's difficult for them to do that. They just can't do it. So, um, Perhaps that's more of a local issue, but I think it probably is nationwide where we need to, we need to uh, work on that a bit. I, I, again, it's, it's, it's like anything else, collegiality. I mean, the point is uh, everyone is doing a great job, but the simplicity should be what's in the patient's best interest. Very good. Tell us what... That's it, because there are some points we'll go over some cases like, you know, we've discussed uh, at various meetings uh, like ARC and other stuff how the symbiosis works so well for the patient. And the patient respects both the doctors because they feel, wow, I was taken off care of at all levels. And the patient comes back to everybody. And the whole concept of the patient coming back is, again, that wild concept of who, the, who are you to own the patient? It should just be, I'm doing a great job. It makes me happy at 5 p.m. And believe me, the patient will always come to you. I mean, I must be doing something abnormal, but to me, this is so simple. I think you're so sincere, it comes through real loud. I do want to get to some specifics, clinical specifics. Sure. And, um, okay, so, so we had a patient, and I said, I, I really need you to see Dr. Galani. I don't know if she made it or not, but she had, uh, had RK done in the 80s, mm -hmm. and that was uh, real commonly done here in Kansas City. And then now she has... Re you know, a refractive shift of about three and a half, four doctors during the day, uh, doesn't want to wear contacts. And really, uh, even though we've set her up with a combination of lenses in her glasses, just wants to be normal. So how do you handle all this whole group of people who have variable vision morning, noon, and night? 
and don't really want to wear contacts. Uh, what are you doing to satisfy those people that, that uh, other ophthalmologists are not doing? So to go back to the start of our discussion today, uh, the three categories of patients I see. One, patients who have what we call routine near-farsighted astigmatism, cataract, but highly demanding. Two, patients who are told they're not a candidate. And three, those who have had complications of LASIK, premium cataract surgery, et cetera. This falls into category two. What I do in these cases is I don't even give it a name. RK, keratectasia, who did your surgery, you know, what technology was used. You know, the poor patient has already been through lots. Just look at the scenario. I call it picking the ball, taking it from the midfield to the end zone. And that's our job there. And there should be no wastage of energy in between. It should be pure attack perform. So when I see any of these cases, the first thing you're right, you have to make sure their cornea is what I call sensible, meaning measurable. Is the cornea consistently measurable that you can then perform surgery? Because surgery is permanent. You don't want to do surgery if things are changing, right? That's basics. So anybody who's changing, I want to stabilize or I at least want to catch their zone of movement. For example, if this RK patient, uh, which I will measure in the morning and afternoon, same day, and then next day, again, mid-morning and late evening. If I see the movement within two adapters, I'm ready to do surgery if it's intraocular because there I compensate for their vision. And I do, let's say in this case, depending on age, we'd go lens-based surgery. And I've even done multifocal lenses in cases of RK. It all depends on the smoothness or regularity and measurability of that cornea. Then, of course, you know of laser cornea plastique that I do. I call that new carpet on broken tiles. Broken tiles, pardon me? Yeah. So broken tiles are your RK cuts, which by the nomograms are 95% yeah, deep, right? So they're going nowhere. But by shaping the front of the cornea, you can override the cuts and the scars, and these patients actually see 20-20 majority of them see 2020 and they're thrilled with it because now they're also not farsighted and they're in the press biopic age group so they can see distance and near they love you so corneoplastique is a way of correcting rk if you extend the rk concept it goes deeper into corneal scar so patients with corneal scars can also have shaping of their front corneal surface not ptk ptk is digging the scar damaging the uh, shape and hence poor vision a refractive laser treatment, very much like as if you're treating refractive surgery, like a PRK. And these patients see 2020. So that's how you would approach an RK case. There are about 18 ways of correcting them, from lens to laser or combinations. You do a lens-based surgery. A month later, you come back and do laser corneoplastique, and the patient is corrected forever. Now, in addition to this, we have cross-linking available in the country. So you can, what I call, trap that vision permanently. Now the cornea is not moving anymore. You have perfect vision. You literally erased the history of this patient's bad past. So the corneoplastique, is that a LASIK form of uh, correction or PRK form of correction? So about 32 laser vision techniques I bring into an umbrella called corneoplastique, which also includes the plan and concepts of intraocular surgery. So now this system... Uh, two years ago, I presented at the World Conference. I called it CLEAR, K-L-E-A-R, the CLEAR system. CLEAR is keratolenticulo-refractive extended armamentarium techniques. 48 techniques to help people see 114 combinations. Now you're a master chef. So imagine any patient now, and we can even do this for fun live as we are going, 
give me any patient with the worst refractive complication or not a candidate concept you can think of and let's use our system to understand what to do. Come on. Let's do that for the fun of the listeners. Oh, let's say uh, uh, mm -hmm. plus five, mm -hmm. minus eight, 50. You're really giving five. me a bad one. Plus eight, minus, plus five, uh, minus eight. Plus five, uh, minus eight, 50, axis 45. 45. Lovely. Now, that'll, that'll, let's say that's in the morning. Okay. You know, so. Okay. So here's my question number one. What kind of patient is this? Is this normal? It cannot be. It's some previous corneal surgery looks like. Yeah, RK. RK. Right. Lovely. What's the age? Um, 62. 62. What's the profession? A, uh, she runs Airbnbs. Owns a few Airbnbs. She, of course. She, of course. She, so she, some computer stuff retired. and some outdoor. She's retired. Now she's playing around. Have fun. Okay. So here's the concept. I look at this patient. I don't even ask her who's your surgeon. I look at the RK cuts. Doesn't matter if it's four or 32 cuts because I know she will see 2020. Of course, we are assuming here for the listeners that the macula and retina is normal, correct? Yeah. So no glaucoma, yeah. no retina, no permanent uh, irreversibility. All right. All right. Now I look through this cornea and I give some respect to the surgeon who did her RK, even if it was crooked and 20 cuts. Because whatever he did, this patient obviously saw through it, correct? Okay. One. Two, given that she's 62, there is surely nuclear sclerosis going on. All right? Okay. Three, has to be, right? And number three, being 62, she's also presbyopic, correct? So she's miserable, basically, because she can't see distance, cannot see near, and is fluctuating on top of that, right? So here's what I would do. I would measure, like I said, four times in two days, find my zone. If it's less than two diopters, I proceed. If it's more than two, I have to wait, maybe even cross-link. Somehow stabilize them. That's my aim here. Now, at this age and stage, I will not let her spend money and do laser on the cornea because her lens is already brewing inside the eye. And we can do, again, here is where the ethics comes in and where you don't have to sell anything. Here's how I would call her Mrs. Smith. You're an extreme hyperope with high irregular astigmatism, with presbyopia, with RK cuts and an early cataract. Do we understand these six elements? Yes, doctor, I get it. All right, good. Now, how do we, with the least amount of surgery, get you to the best vision? Wow, doctor, that makes a lot of sense. All right, good. Now, what I would do here is go inside the eye, exchange her lens, remove that early cataract, put in a toric lens in this case, get at least six diopters astigmatism and bring her to minus one diopter. Output, spherical endpoint with residual astigmatism. All right? She already loves you. And of course, this should be no stitch. If you want, you can use what I use, a reshore sealant to seal the incision if they are traveling. This should be a no stitch surgery. Patient should not feel anything. If done in our new surgical suite, office suite that I do, they don't even need any uh, drugs. It's just very comfortable because these patients are very savvy, as you know, right? RK people are very savvy about medicine. So after doing her lens exchange surgery, in this case with a toric lens, I want to land somewhere minus one myopia with, of course, residual astigmatism because even a T9 toric lens will not correct up to beyond six diopters. So I'm left with a beautiful outcome here. Even if she fluctuates, she fluctuates between zero and minus, which is either she's reading great or seeing distance great. Both she did not have before. Correct? Now, she already loves you because her world has come into focus and she never knew it was possible. And you've done her a great service, whatever the cost of her surgery was. 
is an investment now because you've taken care of her cat rack, which no one will have to do ever again. So look at the amount of services you did for her. Three, at this point now, after about a month or six weeks, when her optometrist sees her back, you look at the refraction and go, all right, where are we? Now, she could be at minus one myopia with minus two astigmatism, and she loves this because it helps her read and see distance and takes care of her fluctuation. Or she can say, Doc, now can you do laser corneoplastic, smoothen my cornea, give me better night vision, correct me to emetropia, and then cross-link me. I am done forever. So you see how even this kind of a extreme case, we can take them to emetropia, and more importantly, a very happy endpoint that she's free. Excellent. So you wait till at least you have a uh, maximum out of two diopters of fluctuation and refractive. Right. Right. And now let's look at it from an optometrist point of view and symbiosis that we talked about. Let's say after I'm done with my surgery, now let's talk about, let's say the patient flew back, let's say to you in Kansas or somewhere in New York or Singapore, wherever, uh, which is where they come from. Now the patient has two options. If she does not want the laser corneoplastic or cannot travel back or whatever cannot afford, we tell her, okay, your optometrist can also do another magic now for you. There's something called scleral contact lens they can put for you. Now the patient is blown away because her vision could be 20-20 or better because you're fitting her with a Superman suit, which has a perfect six-pack in front, <laughs> even if the patient is flabby behind. <laughs> I like that. Uh, Correct? Yeah. So you took a patient who was depressed, had no hope, and you took them to beyond perfection. This is what I call tornadoes. These patients will only talk about you. They are, you're right. They are depressed. They're suicidal. They have lost all hope in life. And guess what? You did not do any rocket science. Very simple stuff. All we did is we spent an hour, which I'm doing today on the weekend, planning the case. And that should be so gratifying because you get to see the results. You're like a master chef who's cooking with thinking, looking at that person who's standing in front of you. And then your payback is that patient smiling and enjoying that meal. That's your payback. So let me go back. So now let's say they, they never get to less than two diopters of... Uh, Refractive shift. I mean, they're still at three and a half, four diopters. What do you okay. do? You cross-link them first. Absolutely, you'll cross-link and stop the cornea. You basically want to stop the cornea from moving so much. Now, I have rarely I have seen thousands of cases over twenty-eight years now. Rarely do I see an archi that trans moves four diopters. That cornea, there must be something wrong with it. This is, again, clinical judgment. Okay. This patient could be a keratoconic cornea that had RK or a Fuchs cornea that had RK, and somebody's missing the diagnosis. Or just a corneal ectasia after... Like exactly. Exactly. So I said LASIK or previous Fuchs or what we call uh, keratoconus. Something is being missed here because four diopters of fluctuation is not a normal cornea. Right. Okay, excellent. Well, that's a, a very succinct process that you go through and why are not you know a hundred competitors doing this in the u.s i mean why do they have to go to gulani vision for uh the da vinci of eye care to get this done what is the problem well thank you for that compliment but i truly i mean i've been teaching uh for 28 years now i'm encouraging every eye surgeon every eye doctor to do this because it's not difficult. I mean, everybody does cataract, right? Everybody does LASIK. Everybody does uh, can do an intact. Everybody can put a lens in the eye. Why not be a chef? You know how to grill. You know how to saute. You know how to fry. Become a chef, a master chef. Right, right. Why are you still stuck with making burgers? Because you're a cook. 
and not a chef. That's the whole thing. So you become a master chef that I think this may be just me. I believe that also leads you to this amazing level of satisfaction that you get when you see this patient smile. And she, and this is where that other thing you asked me, which I don't believe in is, will this patient come back to me? It doesn't matter. This patient could live in Timbuktu. She will insist on every patient flying to you. Correct. Correct. That is my example. If you call it my business model, which I don't have a model, that is my model. I mean, my patients insist. I mean, some of them, this is very funny. We are live on this, but I have patients who uh, fly their ex over and they stay with them and they're not talking, but they're insisting they have surgery with me. <laughs> so you do, so you it's do fascinating couples. to me because it tells me how much the patient believes in you. You do couples therapy. They're not talking to each other. They're relatives who don't talk, but they're keeping them in their house in Jacksonville to ensure that they have surgery with me. So to me, what else could be my billion dollar check? Yeah. That's it. So you, I know you. we frequently hear that, you know, XYZ patient is not a candidate. So what do you, what do you tell these people who hear that all the time? Again, the same concept that we're talking about, you know, you're not a candidate for lunch because you cannot have a burger and burgers is what I make. That's it. So the question was, you know, you're talking about not a candidate, right? So my whole take on that is exactly what I said. If a doctor makes only a burger and a hot dog, guess what you're getting for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? That. And if you cannot have a hot dog or a burger, guess what? You're not a candidate for lunch. To me, that's bizarre. You're a master chef. Everybody has to get a meal from you. You design it to them. So we just discussed the clear system, uh, which is, like I said, over 23 laser vision techniques, 18 cataract surgical techniques, Total about 48 techniques to make people see, over 140 plus combinations. Which patient is not a candidate? Let's again present to me live, uh, Ray, give me a patient that's not a candidate. Let's talk it through. Somebody with a prosthetic eye, I imagine, so. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's correct. <laughs> so most common reasons for not a candidate are what? Thin cornea, cornea all right? Yes. Large pupil. Uh, previous radial keratotomy or scars or irregular cornea. Now, again, let's talk about this. Or quickly. someone with unreasonable expectations. And there is no such person according to me, but fine, let's discuss that too. See, to me, uh, a person who says you're not a candidate because you have thin cornea, let's go back to kindergarten. Thin cornea because the doctor was only thinking LASIK, right? right? He does not have enough tissue. Well, why are you thinking the LASIK? What if that patient was, let's say, a minus nine myope with thin cornea? I'm not doing LASIK. I'm putting an ICL in the eye. What if that patient was minus six and a cornea of 480? I'm doing a laser surface ablation. What if that patient was 69 years old, had a minus seven and um, uh, two diopter astigmatism? I'm going inside the eye, correcting that patient with a toric lens. Now, let's take that patient further down. Keratoconic patient with scar, with cataract, with minus... Of uh, 14 with a minus four astigmatism, what would you do? You put in an intact, stabilize the cornea, make it measurable, go inside, put a toric lens, you're 2020. So you see, there's no limits. There is no such thing as not a candidate. You can peel off the scar with corneoplasty. You can correct an irregular cornea and do a perfect cataract. Or if you've done a cataract or someone's done, a, I call these cases um, half done, meaning, you know, partially baked cases. Right. So these are cases where doctors are selling premium cataract surgery. Well, they've sold it, they've put in the lens, and now they go scratching their head, why is the patient unhappy? 
first thing is you're not refracting the patient. They have most usually a very commonly correctable error, right. stigmatism. Right. I've corrected up to 0.4 diopters and that was all that was between that surgeon and a lawsuit. So the patient only wants excellent vision. And all you did is took an ingredient that was just approved in a recipe that is unapproved. doesn't work that way. You cannot go to a national meeting and attend a big course about a new uh, coffee bean that just came out and start selling that to everybody because a coffee bean does not work in curry. It does not. You have to have the logic, sense, and integrity to not put it in a curry because then you can't go scratching your head. The coffee bean doesn't work. That's wrong. Every intraocular lens works. There is no such thing as an ideal lens because each lens is to be to the optical system of that eye. Or make that patient a candidate. For example, I do pterygium surgery, right? With uh, no stitch amniotic graft. These patients look good enough that they go up to a mirror and they love what they see. Well, guess what? You've just converted them to a laser or a premium cataract patient. Because now they're a normal cornea. So you make that patient a candidate, treat their dry eyes like we were discussing, but whatever you use, uh, restasis, uh, your lippy flow, your myboman gland probing, your IPL, whatever you're using for correcting the dry eye, now the patient's right. a candidate. Right. So how is this not a candidate concept correct? It is not correct. You are depriving a patient of seeing the world the best they can because of your insecurity. So every patient is a candidate. Absolutely. Well, I love your attitude, and I, I wish that would be, that would be uh, everyone would have the same attitude. Okay, so I want to get into a little bit about your concept of, I know we, we, we think that the way you're describing it, it's totally patient-centric, but you have a concept of your thought process on making the surgeon really the center of the process. I mean, it sounds to me like you're very patient-centric, but go through your surgical suite, how you have music, and how it's important for the surgeon to actually be comfortable during this whole process. As we said before, uh, a patient is just looking for a comfortable surgeon, right? And that comfort comes through so well just on your first meeting in the room. You don't have to pretend, and that's what the patient catches immediately, which anybody can. So no need to pretend. That takes a lot of energy. I keep saying to doctors, don't pretend. If you're a bad guy, just be bad. <laughs> you know, Be a nice guy. The patient has come all the way from you. And they already trust you. So just be yourself. You don't have to put on an act of whatever you are not because that is exhausting and the patient sees it. Yeah. So what I say is this. And many doctors come and ask me this too. Doctor, we'd like to dress up in a suit like you. Is that's why patients are impressed? I'm like, that's not the case at all. I wear a suit because I'm a fashion designer. That's the most comfortable I feel. I don't feel comfortable in things that don't match. And that translates to my surgery. But in your case, if you like the fact that you're wearing shorts and flip-flops, the patient will love you because you are comfortable in what you are. That's the first secret. Second thing is, in surgery, your confidence shows you know, like we do, I mean, every patient signs consent, informed consent. You know, you can't fool and you should not. But once that is done, commit to the patient and they see that commitment. You know, in surgery, I don't rush any patient. All my patients one at a time in our new surgical suite, all they remember is the music because they are so calm and I'm talking to them throughout surgery. Now that to me, when I teach surgeons, I call it a dance. You cannot be different in a dance from your partner. 
you cannot dance faster to show off or you cannot dance um, irregularly because the other person will miss the step and then you'll stamp on them, meaning complication. In surgery, you're dancing with your patient. Be in the same rhythm. Are you playing, That's it. Are you playing your, your favorite music or the patient's choice? I play the music that I, I'm comfortable and I like, and it's amazing most patients like it. Everybody likes a soft instrumental music going on in the OR. Absolutely. Simple, soft, calm. Jim Brick. And that's normal for everybody. I mean, it's just normal. I, like I said, I'm a simple person. I keep it normal. But yes, I greet the patient myself. I see them in surgery. Me, my staff, know the patients by first name. And all that is, has to be genuine because, believe me, this is another maybe business thing I'm teaching, but I don't need to because I just say it as it comes to me. Pretense takes a lot of energy. Doctors learn these things at these classes and meetings that, you know, this is how you should behave and do. Just be yourself. Yeah. Patients love somebody who's, you know, just think about you. Which friend do you like to be with? The friend who's himself or herself. Not with somebody who has a pretense. That takes the time away. Mm. It's yeah. energy. I think it is important to forget the ego, forget the small talk about everything. Sports. There is so much to learn. You know, if you listen to patients, they are fighter pilots. They've been in the wars or they, they were, you know, captains uh, across the world. I mean, there's so much they can teach us. I always learn from them. You know, when I'm traveling somewhere, it's funny. You already know my relation with patients. But let's say I got an invite from Tokyo. I didn't go for two years. I was thinking it's too far. Guess what? A patient from Tokyo was sitting in my chair for surgery. While I did a surgery, I said, okay, I have this invite. What should I do? He said, doc, just come over and I'll plan the trip for you. Guess what? I signed off that same day. I'm coming to speak in Tokyo. So the beauty is there's so much to learn from our patients. They can teach you so many things and you're not even leaving your own office. Amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Tell us about your, your staff and their involvement in creating the perfect patient experience. So my staff, uh, I, I do not like to take anything, anybody who has previous ophthalmic experience because they come with the baggage of what can and cannot be done and how badly the doctors treated them. I take graduates uh, from universities, local university at this point, uh, so you can also help the community. And these are brilliant people, very driven, and within a month they understand all aspects. I have very simple directions for them. Every patient is my family. Nobody waits here. You all must have lunch on time. We start at 9, we finish at 5, no weekends. You must have time with family. Your growth is my priority. Period. That's it. Done. Let's get to so work. It sounds like you, have, you actually have demands of your staff and you want them to be accountable and perform. How do you instill that confidence in them? Just like anybody else would do, I'm presuming, is be your own example. They see me. I am there at 8 a.m., always the first, always the last to leave. I never come in shabby. I never come in complaining. Every patient, they're seeing me go out of my way. If someone cannot afford something, I go up to industry. I'll do whatever. I'll pay for it. So when they see all those patterns, you don't have to teach them. They just imbibe it. Mm -hmm. That's at least what I've learned over 20 years. Yeah, sounds like my dad, so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh you know. I love what you say about, you know, the way you dress. I think that is so important in medicine because people really, really do internalize that, whether you're in flip-flops or, or in a custom suit that you designed, which I, my dad and I both love designing too as well. But yeah, it really get, makes the vibe of the experience. 
again, you know, it does, but this part is very true. You need to be comfortable. If you are wearing a suit to impress a patient and your shoes are uncomfortable and you're uncomfortable in the fit of the suit, the patient is uncomfortable with you. So like I said, like you said, if you like to, that is fantastic. I would love every doctor to dress up. You know, I say this to them all the time. You're going to zip up and button up something today. Why not make it fun? Why not match it? Why not make it fun? Why wear black, blue, and gray all the time? What's wrong with you? So I, I jokingly say this to them, but I mean it truly. As doctors, you are a rock star. Everybody looks up to you. It's up to you to let them down. You know, you don't have to be good looking. You can be a doctor and you walk into a grocery store. If your patient sees you there, guess what? They will point out to you, the entire family, that you are their guy. Is that true or no? It's true. And I, it's interesting that you say that about the suits because I go to these meetings and if I don't have a suit on, like if I'm just driving in, you know, three hours and they'll say, hey, where's your suit? So, <laughs> so there's some people have never seen me without a suit on. And there's other people that, you know, may have only seen them casually at the gym or something. They're like, oh, how come you're wearing a suit? So, but I think it's one of the easiest things to be professional is just to be properly groomed and properly attired. Yet I will still see colleagues wearing their Western wear polyester sport coat from that they I've seen for 25 years at various meetings. So um, it's it's interesting how it, as we gotten more casual, that casual often means unprofessional looking. So uh, and and there's one more thing: if someone is okay with a stain. Again, maybe their jeans, I'm not saying suit, whatever people wear. It's, it's all okay. Everybody they can decide for themselves. But if you're comfortable wearing an unpolished shoe, you might be comfortable leaving the surgery looking less than exotic. It's pretty, pretty common that that correlates. You have to be equal. And that's when I teach surgeons to be an artist. You know, anybody can be a surgeon, but I want them to be artists. Anybody can paint a wall, but can you take that same paintbrush, no special paint, and do a fresco for me, hanging upside down from the ceiling? That's when I recognize you. So that level of care is what patients, because another point I like to say is you cannot package garbage. If your results are bad, no matter what you dress up as, doesn't matter, won't last. The results has to be impeccable, and only then can you do the other stuff. And that's where doctors are being taught wrong at all these meetings. They're taught all the other things, but the fact that you've got to take care of the patient. So, Dr. Galani, as we conclude here, perhaps you could give us some final words and tell us uh, a little bit uh, of a summary of what you want the listener to gather and also how they can contact you for further information. Surely. So, a very important part coming from today's impromptu discussion is what patients need to be told what doctors need to know. We are living in times that are very exciting for eye care. We have so many kinds of lens implants for cataract surgery, so many modalities to do the cataract surgery. Um, we have so many ways of doing laser vision surgery, not only LASIK, smile, relax, but so many laser corneoplastique ways of doing it that everybody is a candidate, even with thin cornea, high astigmatisms, keratoconus, corneal scar, radial keratotomy. All these patients 
can have excellent vision. And then the symbiotic factor where there are cases which uh, I do, and then the optometrist in their city, state, or country where they refer the patient from can then go into scleral contact lenses, lenses or the 3D HD printed uh, contact lenses, which are very exciting nowadays. So for the patient today, the limits... Talk about 3D. Pardon me? Yes, 3D uh, printed, 3D printed, and then you have your uh, what do you call it? The custom print uh, contact lenses that are out uh, that Dr. Sims yes. uh, talks print, about, bro. right? I print. So there are so many modalities nowadays: surgery, contact lenses, the symbiosis of ophthalmology and optometry. This is the most golden era, I would call it. So, the kind of patients we talked about, the categories of patients to be seen, referred, and let the patients excel. Second, what's new out there? There are now lens implants that I'm working in on abroad where you can adjust the lens after it's in the eye, meaning after putting it in for cataract surgery, you can adjust it with a special light and guess what? Fine-tune the vision to perfection. Then there are new modalities for reading glasses which we can put implants not in the cornea but on the lens of a patient who already has a lens. So all these things that I'm doing abroad, then there are the gels that we are using to go inside the eye so patients don't have to use eye drops and bottles and the expenses. Then there are aspects where we can take patients and now I even was part of this system we read about where we can regenerate the cornea, uh, actually artificially. Now, if many doctors are still doing DSEC and DMEC, as you know, for Fuchs dystrophy, for past nine years, I've been doing a strip technique where you let the patient's own cells grow back and Japan is the center which is doing a lot of studies on injecting endothelial cells. So look at the future. Imagine a patient with Fuchs dystrophy with dense subluxated cataract with keratoconus. Even there, you can take those patients to 2020 today. What an amazing time to live in. Keratoconus patients, I think we should now call it a refractive surgery. By calling it keratoconus, doctors are getting scared and depressing the patient by calling it a disease. Once that is stable, why shouldn't the patient see 2020? Why crossling the patient when they are crooked, crossling them once they are corrected? So these are the futuristic aspects of things going on. Dry eye treatment is gaining so much mileage now with new technologies that people are getting into that all these patients who are not candidates will become candidates. So there's no limits to what's happening in the future. I'm leaving uh, next week to teach abroad, seeing again new technologies before it comes to us in the US and US FDA approval. But the limits don't exist anymore with the new surgical suite concept that we talk. Yes. What do you say to a doctor who's scared to spend the money and put the investment in the technology? The fact that, uh, you know, certain things are a necessity. If you decide, again, go back to my philosophy, why? Why would you stay where you are and not give the patient the best care? So that will put him or her in a scary zone of one day the patients will be unhappy or they will realize that they were getting suboptimal care in today's time. Why would you do that? So what we do, I was going to say, how are you handling uh, higher orders of aberration in terms of correction? Because some of the people that have had uh, LASIK, you know, their their front part of their cornea is is actually fine, but they're having a posterior cornea issue. I know I've had that problem before. And even though you correct them well uh, externally, they still have some higher order aberrations. How are you handling that now? Very easy to correct. You use the laser to correct these patients because, again, I call these molehills. 
but the mountains are still being missed. Many doctors are still leaving astigmatism uncorrected in these patients because they went by autoref refraction and stuff like that. So if you refract these patients closely, they do have a residual error that multiplied by the HOA causes the issues for the patient. HOAs can be corrected because the laser can be modified to an algorithm to correct that. For example, spherical aberration or uh, a coma can be corrected. In addition, here is another place when an optometrist comes into great impact by using a contact lens because, again, Superman suit. So all these cases, like I told you, the third category of patients I have are those who have LASIK somewhere in the nation or world and are seeing 2020 and are unhappy. And I'm correcting them. So these patients are so happy with a correction of as small as 0.4 diopters. It's a matter of how astute they are. And these patients usually are pilots, surgeons, people with extremely demanding vision, and hence they notice it. And it's important to correct it. Very easy have to you do. Have refractive surgery yourself? You, no, I'm not. Just blessed, blessed with good vision? Not yet, no. Thank God, but that became my driving factor eh, when I was teaching in South Africa. Uh, so a little detour, but uh, I always knew my vision was 2010. But when I saw uh, the guy after I finished my talk at, at the university in South Africa, at the meeting. Then they took me to a safari in Pinda. And the guy driving my Jeep uh, was a local. He could see a black buffalo in the bush at midnight. This was midnight <laughs> when they took me there. And I, I pried my vision. And I and him, we were straining to see far away. And he could see it. Now, I till they don't know that he already knew <laughs> that was staged. There was a buffalo there or no. But I flew him. I requested them to fly him with me to Pretoria and I took a look and his vision was better than 2010. So it's amazing. So to me, that became my driving factor that because I see 2010, I don't relax with people for 2020. I aim for more than that. If you fall at 2020, great, but every patient should be given the best potential in their brain. What are you going to do when you get presbyopic? I will be <laughs> miserable. <laughs> really because that's that's you know everything that we correct the intensity i'll have a tough time understanding where to go but i do know what to do maybe i'll uh, train my wife to do that on me i just did her surgery okay. do, it in the do it in the kitchen the doctor. Yeah. Huh? well master chefs do that in the kitchen so okay but uh that's the kind and then so that's the new stuff coming up i just feel Tremendous time for ophthalmology optometrists to be so optimistic, to be so energized, to be so thrilled, to be privileged in this profession. And for patients, there's no limits to the amount of vision that's out there for them. As of today, I don't want anybody to think that they're not a candidate. And all these surgeries that are highly interventional, like transplants and stuff, will become uh, very long past. The future is vision. Do you take medical insurance and how does that factor into your protocol yes we do uh we do as you know there's some of it is medically covered if we do things like uh, some pterygium surgeries uh some cataract cases absolutely yes but otherwise people are expected to pay cash uh, as you know in premium cataract surgery like anywhere else in the country they do pay the premium beyond the insurance and if there is surgery that is elective, like laser vision surgery, et cetera, um, insurance doesn't cover that at all. So, yes, those are cases where it's uh, non-insurance related surgeries, correct. And then if they can't pay, you, 
you let that be your guiding force. Okay. Yes. Like I said, I mean, that's where the staff sees you, that you're not, you stick to your principle. If I decide, and this is again, a funny story for you, but that's how I practice. You know, I had a professional football player who came in with his entourage of six doctors and uh, he was sitting in the lobby and I had a fisherman who had lost his fingers uh, because of his dense cataract and he had five doctors stigmatism in his cornea, white cataracts with uh, stigmatism. And the fisherman, the day he traveled to me, he just was three hours away, but he was told to come here. He obviously didn't earn the day he came here, right? Because he's not fishing. Right, right. And he couldn't afford. And I told my staff, we have to do toric lens. I have to get him to zero. And they're like, Doc, he can't afford anything. I said, well, that means I will pay for it. So that attitude is very important for your staff to see that our doctor doesn't shake. He commits to patients and he sticks to it. Now, the fun part, when I saw this professional football player who was sitting outside in the lobby that same day, I proposed to him. I said, listen, I'm going to do this guy who you don't know. I've seen him first time, but I would say, I would suggest you help him. And he's like, well, I don't know him. I said, that's fine, but I'm telling you, you should help him. And uh, I first said that. And he was like, well, I said, you know, then I will just throw you out of my office. And he's like, oh, my <laughs> God. No one speaks to me like this. I said, take care of them. I'm Dr. Golani, and you are flown to me, and you can afford anybody from here on, leave. And he was like, no one has spoken to me like this, doctor. I'm amazed. And this is what happened, Ray. This is what I'm trying to say this yeah. for. Okay. Being somebody who doesn't think beyond reality and human beings, this is what I did that day. Again, I'm just impromptu saying this to you. So I said to him, this is it. I will not do your surgery. And I know you can afford anybody, anything, so leave. And he was like, Doc, my gosh, other people would die for me and would bond me as, you know, having my name and my photos with you. I said, no, my photo with you is more important. So forget it. Uh... So he was taken aback. And that was my true stance of how a doctor should be. So then I told him, okay, are you or are you not? And this is just a fun story I'm giving you. Okay, he said, great. sir, I will do it for you. I said, not for me. You will do it for your fellow human being who's sitting outside. After he said yes, I came into the room and said, I was just kidding. But I wanted to see if you have the resolve besides what you do on the field. And I will do your surgery. So we became thick friends. Till date, he calls me from anywhere in the world he is. But the point is, commitment is commitment. As a surgeon, when you tell a patient they need something, you don't waver. I have no qualms about sometimes even while having to pay myself. No comps. And the staff sees this. That translates to administration where they don't have to, uh, what do you call it? Remember, they've seen it. So if, they, if a patient calls and says, hey, doc, what does your doctor think if I can? They say, our doctor doesn't think like that. He just decides and you have no options. See, as doctors, Ray, the other problem is doctors have lost their desire to be doctors. A patient looks up to you to give him the option, the prescription. Correct? You do not give patient, the poor patient, the silly options that are given nowadays. What can you afford? Platinum, gold, or nonsense? And the poor patient goes, how the hell do I know? So the business model has to be, this is what I feel as your doctor, you deserve. And you got to trust me, that's why you came here. So I believe that is the crux of how the model should be and how patients react to each other. It would be nice to be charitable to everyone. I have a little story that happened yesterday. I've mm -hmm. seen this uh, this couple, and I, I think they, uh, they're they in their 60s. And I always thought they were married, but they weren't actually married. And, and this gentleman came to me. He's a, loyal, he's a loyal patient. 
for the exam, but never, never gets glasses from us. And I've worked through his double vision and all. So I see his gal who is wearing glasses taped up. I've seen her for five years with taped up glasses. And after I was done with his exam, I said, I'm going to examine you and we're going to get you a free pair of glasses. I said, I can't take looking at you anymore that way. And I'm, we're going to get you a totally free pair of glasses. And what she said to me, she says, no, I don't want to get your glasses because I don't like any of your frames out front. Now we have Cartier. We have 2,500 frames. We have a, our own design, Brill Eye Design Studio to custom design the frames. Um, and she said, I don't want any of your glasses. I'm going to go somewhere else and get glasses. And it turns out that the taped, the taped up glasses were kind of a dime store pair of glasses she bought at CVS. I thought, that is just terrible that this truck driver let her walk around for four or five years with taped up dime store glasses. And I thought my effort to be charitable was then thrown out. So I agree. I, I, was, reje I was rejected. I thought, okay, I'll do, <laughs> I'll do your exam. I'll write out your RX. But maybe you I know what I say to that, Ray? What? You know, you no know what I say to such things? No good deed goes unpunished or what? No, no. What I say to those things is this. You asked me about social media some time back, and you know, I said to you, I neither monitor it nor do I do anything. I have no active person managing my website or social media. It's all my patients. That's why we've had marketing people from all over the country fly to me. Who does your Facebook? I'm like, nobody. My patients do it. I don't even get to post there if you see. It's only my patients. But that is important. And then someone tells me, doctor, a patient posted something negative about you. I said, fine, that's great. I'm told there is so much positive about me. Let there be some negative. So it is important that we look at that and go, if 5,000 patients are saying how nice you are, and one patient who is not even your patient, but who basically maybe couldn't understand the passion with which you spoke, is saying that you were a tough guy or a bad guy, let that stay. It's okay. This patient who did not take your offer doesn't change the fact that you've helped thousands. Right. Right? That's it. Let it, was, it was just interesting. So, but the staff saw that too, and I thought, okay, we all agreed. I mean, she did, really deserves it. So, um, any case, it's not on the same level as you. No, but see, that's the same reason patients come to you, right? They are seeing the quality, they are seeing the designer wear, and that is vital. I believe the crux of this whole thing is the opportunity is there. People are fighting for second place. Right. We see a lot of Medicaid. A lot of patients on welfare and to bring the whole family in i always give them much better frames than we're supposed to and mainly because we want them to be happy and they come in the next year and they're not broken we save a lot of time on that and i tell them don't get me into trouble because i'm giving you a lot better frame but they they know they know that or they'll say something like hey doc this is nice i said what do you mean oh we're used to being herded around shuffled around uh sped in and sped out talked down to i think well why would we ever want to do that? And it's the greatest pleasure when they come in a year later and they're no longer on assistance. I thought, see, now they've chosen to come to us and actually pay, which is which is a lot of fun. So that's a that's a wonderful story right there. That's a wonderful but story. But you can't be charitable. You can't be charitable to everyone. You can't be charitable to everyone, though. That's the problem. You know, otherwise you, you know, we'll have a, a, a line out the door. And, um, you know, we won't be productive. So now I'm going to get back on track. Do, do you have any other doctors with you at all, Dr. Galani? Because when you travel, then what happens to those patients or that patient care? 
No, none. None. Again, uh, the way I practice, I very unique. First of all, uh, my travel is mostly weekend. Even if it's worldwide, I leave Friday. I'm back by Monday morning. Uh, two, my cell phone is with every patient. Three, of course, I have a doctor who covers, but that's never, never been called in because they call me directly, if at all. But again, by God's grace, the results are so good. I've never had a call. And here's the most important part. I don't operate 10 days before I leave and seven days after I come back. I see. Again, okay. all these things are very simple because I always look in the mirror and ask, why? Why would I want to operate when I come back jet lagged next day? Right. I don't want to because it's wrong for the patients. Mm -hmm. I, I don't that. go to the gym the night before surgery. I don't have wine the night before. I don't go out for a party the night before surgery. Period. All this is why, W-H-Y. I want to be perfect for my patient next day, even though they don't expect it. And even though, thank God, my skills are so good. Still, why should I cut it short for the patient? So these are all the W-H-Ys I do. Post-surgery, I have ice cream. I go home. I don't do anything else. I'm so happy. Because <laughs> I've achieved, I achieved what I set out to do. What's your favorite ice cream? Any ice cream. Any candy. Any chocolate is my favorite. I can, well, I go nuts. How do you stay so fit? <laughs> I don't know. I love ice cream. I love chocolate. Um, I love great food. That's it's just fantastic. Again, that's a whole different a discussion, Dre. Do you have huh? a workout regimen? Nothing. I just lift my cup of coffee once a week. Okay. That's it. Oh, that's it. Okay. All right. Well, let's all get these things, Ray. All these things yeah. I'm talking as inspirational talk. I just gave uh, lately uh, to a group at the business school here. It's all mindset. Right. It's all mindset. All this thing about diets, all this thing about this diet and that, it's all going to be a fad. It'll all come down one day as fraud. It's a mindset that when I'll talk about that some other day, but this is what keeps people going mindset and what you do. The energy that doctors waste in pretending to be who they are not is what takes the toll by evening 5 p.m. Right. I have fun all day with the patients, kid around with them. Uh, and sometimes it back, sometimes it backfires, but I sometimes have to turn the energy level down <laughs> because they're sullen, you know, they're in there, no one's talking, they're texting to each other. So I have huh. to kind of gear it down a little bit, but some, but rarely, but sometimes people do mistake that buoyancy, you know, for something else. So, cause they're not, used their to reaction is no measurement of your action. Yeah. So we're. But I think I just have fun all day long. I'm not even, I'm not really working. I'm just doing what I do. So it, it, it's fun. So uh, what do you foresee your exit strategy to be? You exit from things you don't like. I don't know. I don't have an exit strategy. That's why I just built this new surgical suite and the fun continues. And uh, my travel is still seven times a year. I'm committed somewhere in the world. And then local, of course, next week, American Academy. But um, I think, you know, it's, it's amazing, the privilege, Ray, that we are given to do what we do. That's it. Do you, so worry, fun about, is again, do you huh? worry about, do you worry potentially about uh, if for some reason you were incapacitated that you don't have a backup? Now, I'm thinking mainly at my question about myself, because I have uh -huh. a hard time finding an associate because they don't have the passion and that they don't and they don't know the stuff. They'll say. You'll, they're new graduates, and I say, well, you'll have to teach me everything. 
I'm thinking you should know some things, but they don't have the passion. Even if they say, oh, I, I learned how to do that, uh, I liken it to learning how to swim by reading a book. And once you're in the <laughs> water, it's a completely, right. completely different story. So I have people tra travel uh, from different states to see us. And actually, the farthest is from Panama and from Wales, you know, mainly for dry eye. And we have a lot, we have a big color vision or color blindness practice. So we have people travel, and I think if they come see an associate and they have, and they're not conversant, uh, just because they don't have the experience, I mean that's going to be a problem. So especially if you're a nice, nice name and brand. So I just released my fashion line. So that's my other oh. passion. You know that keeps you going. Where's your fashion line? Uh, How do we get your huh? stuff? Well, it's, I just released it. It's called Gulani, and uh, I just released it on my uh, birthday two weeks ago. So the whole thing here is, again, do things that make you happy. And then, of course, the support system is very important. You know, in my case, uh, my wife, our family, you know, everybody should believe in what you do. And that's what makes it fun. So some days when you come home, having done an even more intense case, they are the ones who give you the backbone and go, great, you're still on the right track. Well, Dr. Galani, it's been uh, immeasurably great to have you online with us here. and and on our podcast. And I would like you to tell us, how does anybody get in touch with you if they have a patient or if they just want to learn more about your services? Sure, again, thank you for having me. And uh, the best way uh, people get in touch with us is through our website. If you see there, there are two categories of contact us forms. One is for patients directly from anywhere in the world. They can email us and that comes to our uh, international desk, and then they, from there, uh, start reviewing and giving patients appointments. And the second contact us form is for doctors. It's for optometrists and ophthalmologists, and they can refer the patient over. And then what happens in addition from there is I actually do a telecon with patients who are flying in. So they pretty much understand my philosophy, know why they're coming, how long they're staying. So all these, again, go back to my philosophy of one-on-one. -on -one. So the best way to contact us is through our website. And of course, uh, our number is there too. Uh, call us anytime. We're in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, love What's to your help website anybody name? we can. GulaniVision.com. G-U-L-A-N-I Vision.com. All right. Very good. Thank you again. And we wish you best of everything as you serve your patients in the best manner possible. This brings us to the end of another episode of Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. Go ahead and click over to our website, entrepreneur.com, or head over to Facebook to join our special Facebook group, Entrepreneur. See you there.